of the things again that we're trying to do is is like elevate voices and individuals that haven't necessarily been as involved in those in those discussions previously you know in in michigan and wisconsin i mean people are impacted by water quality issues and if they are not in force coming out and, and demanding and asking for changes of of their of their elected officials of state agencies then then it continues to kind of fly under the radar and it becomes something that like you know you and i are talking about and you and i are pushing for in in state houses and state administrations um but there is a huge amount of there are a huge amount of opportunities that at the state level that i think citizens can get engaged with and and i think that is for me like the first step for a lot of this because until we have enough people saying no like i would like to be able to go to the lake like no i would like to be able to not cancel my boat tours on lake erie because the algae is so bad or it's toxic um like until we get to that point um it's it's easy for the status quo to just kind of keep plodding along as it is Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat, the show that dives into all things Great Lakes. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. In today's episode, we're talking with Tom Zimnicki, the Alliance's Agricultural and Restoration Policy Director. We'll talk with Tom about harmful algal blooms in the Great Lakes, the role agricultural pollution plays in causing these blooms, and get get his thoughts on how to tackle this challenging problem. Welcome, Tom. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So like we always do, let's start right at the beginning. Um, Pollution from agriculture is a huge problem in the Great Lakes. It causes massive harmful algal blooms, you know, like the ones that happen each summer in Western Lake Erie. When we talk about agricultural pollution, though, what what do we really mean? What does that phrase mean, agricultural pollution? Uh, It it sometimes depends on who you ask. Um, But I think really generally we can think about it as obviously to to produce crops and we have to apply, we've gotten to the point where we have to apply fertilizer um, in some form to those fields. And so that fertilizer can come in a lot of different forms, um, but we generally think about them as kind of like commercial or synthetic fertilizers or manure-based fertilizers. Um, And so what when we think of agricultural pollution, um, obviously we apply those those fertilizers to the field. Um, not all of those fertilizer, not all of that fertilizer is necessarily used by the crops. And so this the the stuff that runs off, the stuff that gets off the field, um, typically is how most people think about what agricultural pollution is. Um, and and there are a lot of different causes for why that that might run off um and and i should also i guess say just before we get into this we we think about fertilizer and for for algal blooms though we really think about nitrogen and phosphorus those are kind of the main two nutrients that that folks are concerned about when it comes to surface water quality got it and so 
particularly, you know, I'm glad you pulled out nitrogen and phosphorus because it's sort of a big class of things, you know, all these different fertilizers and they cause different problems in different waterways. But what if we think narrowing in on nitrogen and phosphorus, what types of problems does that cause in waterways? We sort of referenced a little bit about harmful algal blooms, but what, what's the real problem here with this pollution? Yeah, so so if if too much nitrogen and phosphorus, and in places like Lake Erie, phosphorus is is a, a bigger concern for this. Um, if too much of it gets in, it spurs algal growth in surface water. Um, and so we'll, I think later on, probably get into maybe what that will then eventually cause. But the other thing to keep in mind, too, since some of this fertilizer is coming from manure, um, other things also can get into the surface water as well. So we're also concerned about uh, like pathogens and, and bacteria and E. coli getting in um, at, at the same time that that nitrogen and phosphorus are getting in. And so when nitrogen and phosphorus get into the water, they spur algal growth. Um, and then over time, that that algae dies, it decomposes. Um, and during that decomposition process, uh, it it consumes oxygen from the water. And so that, that oxygen consumption then means that uh, that isn't available for other things living in the lake or the river or the stream. And so you see uh, fish kills, you see other kind of uh, ecological issues stemming from that lack of oxygen. Gotcha. And so you know, my understanding is that over the past couple of decades, this problem has just sort of steadily been increasing. You know, it's not like something that just the other day we were like, oh, no, this is a problem. Um, and it's it's a you know, problem across the country, but particularly here in the Great Lakes, because there's such a heavily agriculture producing region. Um, and my understanding is, is that this sort of decades long increase in the problem has to do with a couple of factors. Right. Part of it is about how agriculture lands are managed and what crops are being produced. So tell us a little bit about how those two things have changed over the past two decades. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, going back many decades, right, there was there were all sorts of issues like on the Cuyahoga and elsewhere um, of of pollution in the water. And so this this spurred huge changes um, around how we manage wastewater getting into into the Great Lakes and into the tributaries. Um, and so we made all sorts of changes to and 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 implemented the Clean Water Act. And so we saw huge improvements on on water quality from that. You know, several decades after that, you know, we we identified that phosphorus was a problem, that Lake Erie was at, you know declared dead um, from uh, largely from phosphorus. And so this, the states went in and, and banned for, or, uh, phosphorus in, in household detergents. We cracked down on uh, phosphorus as it applies to like residential lawns and things like that. And so we saw this, this resurgence of, of water quality in the lakes. Um, but then, yes, as, as you've pointed out, certainly over the last couple decades, uh, in the last several years, things have, have gotten worse. And so, you know, there a lot of it, I think, boils down to just an overall intensification of how we are producing, uh, how we are producing food in the, in this country and in the region. Um, you know, back in the '70s, and uh, maybe only people 
that that I work with uh, find this stuff interesting. But you know, back in the '70s, there was this whole you know get big or get out mantra within USDA and and Nixon's USDA secretary kind of made this push around get bigger, get out, we're going to feed the world kind of mantra. And so what this did is it over time has driven more and more uh, uh, row crop operations as well as livestock operations to get bigger. And so in places like Wisconsin, we've seen smaller and smaller dairies uh, either going out of business or getting absorbed by kind of a bigger company. Um, you see kind of the footprint of row crop operations across the, the Great Lakes and the Midwest getting bigger and bigger. Um, and so what this does, it, I mean, it, it creates more pressure on the landscape, right? If you are trying to produce a crop, if you were trying to produce, uh, you know, a livestock product for the lowest price possible, um, you are like that creates these inherent risks, right? And you're pushing to drive that cost down more and more. Um, so the intensification has been big. We have kind of moved away from more diversified operations. And so, you know, row crop operations used to integrate several different uh, commodities within them. Now they are, you know, in a large sense, corn and soybean rotations, um, a lot of that corn and soy is is going to feed the livestock next door, um, which, you know, going back to what we talked about before, like creates a lot of manure. And then you have this concentrated pool of manure in these in these different locations. Um, so we've lost some of that diversification. Um, we have, uh, you know, and so that that intensification has been huge. Um, I think the other thing too, and and I'd be somewhat remiss if I didn't point out that you know we, the collective we, kind of this environmental community and the advocacy community, it often gets pointed at farmers, right? And we say, well, we got we need farmers to do more. We need to regulate farmers. We need to crack down on what farmers are doing. Um, we also need to recognize, right, that farmers are one piece in in a very big agribusiness and like food supply chain system. And so, yes, there are things we need to be doing or, or asking, requiring farmers to be doing, but, but farmers are also responding to national and international trade policy. Um, they are a product of this mentality and this system of, of get big or get out. Um, and so, yes, there are things that, that we can be doing at the farm level, there are also things, and, and we've seen this over the last several decades, become more and more uh, apparent in national farm policy. Um, there are things we need to be doing at the national level, too, um, to kind of move away from this system that we've created over the last 20, 30, 40 years. That is really helpful, Tom. And I think that's a really important point to think about the whole system. You know, it's not just one bad guy out there or right. bad girl or whatever. Um, you know, it's it's a, a system of policies that are driving in this direction. Um, you know, 
I think that's also a really important point that you brought up, which I want to flag, is this idea of point versus non-point source pollution, right? And that we've gotten really good. You gave the example of the Cuyahoga River and all that industrial pollution. We've got really good at turning off the spigot on point source, right? So there's a pipe from a factory that's spewing bad chemicals. There's laws and regulations under the Clean Water Act to stop that or limit that or find somebody if they do spill bad stuff, bad chemicals out of their pipe. But the Clean Water Act doesn't manage as well, and it wasn't designed, right, to deal with non-points. So things like farm runoff, where there isn't just one particular pipe, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and largely, the almost entirely, the, the Clean Water Act excludes non-point source, which is what agriculture is. And so, yeah, you know, we, we've... We been shifted. And so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how do we get more farmers to like voluntarily adopt conservation practices and how do we get more farmers to like buy into to diversifying their ro- rotations and things like that. And and since we have these water quality issues, the you know, agencies state and federal go to point sources and say, "Well, we need to reduce your limit. We need to reduce what you are what you are discharging into surface water, um, we need to further reduce that. And so then that means that those facilities are either having to do, they're doing more monitoring, they're doing more treatment, they have to build additional capacity. I mean, like all these Mm -hmm. infrastructure things, which cost a lot of money, right? And so then this, this, when you look at like affordability issues for water in places like Toledo or Detroit, or any of these other kind of major municipalities um, across the basin, uh, we are asking those ratepayers who are already forced or are already facing affordability issues. We're asking them to do even more for things that, in in some regard, they did not directly generate. Right, like mm-hmm. they are they are they are collecting that water. They are taking that water in to then to then distribute to residents. But but the level of pollution in some of those water bodies that they have to treat um, is not something that necessarily those ratepayers caused. Mm. So let's dig into Western Lake Erie a little bit and the Toledo area. And so, you know, Western Lake Erie has become, sadly, kind of the poster child in the Great Lakes region, but also nationally for this issue of harmful algal blooms. So. Explain first why this problem is so big in Western Lake Erie and not necessarily in other, you know, we don't hear about it as much in other parts of the lakes. Yeah, uh, a lot of it has to do with just the physical characteristics of Lake Erie, so or Western Lake Erie. So Western Lake Erie is very shallow. Um, it is consequently much warmer than other uh, other parts of not only Lake Erie, but other uh, other Great Lakes. Uh, it also has, obviously, it has a lot of agriculture and as well as point sources and and municipalities that are ultimately discharging water that makes it to Lake Erie. So you have this combination of a lot of nutrients um, leaving the land, whether that's from from urban suburban areas or whether that's from agricultural land uh, getting into the lake. And then you have these these physical characteristics that 
are really become like a breeding ground for algal blooms. And so when you have warmer temperatures, when you have more shallow water, um, you, you get uh, blooms that are more prevalent than in other, other parts of the Great Lakes. Yeah, and these blooms are no, no, no joke, really. You know, you can, they're so big each year, you know, there's a, a forecast that, that sort of predicts how big the bloom will be each year, but every year it's generally so big, you can see it from outer space. I mean, this is a, over a massive area. Mm -hmm. And Explain a little bit, these blooms sometimes can become toxic, um, and that's what happened, gosh, probably seven years ago in Toledo, right? The, one of these blooms settled over their water intake pipe. They took in water that was toxic, and people were without water for two, almost three days in, in early August. Um, so explain a little bit about how, like what, what this problem is with toxicity and um, you know, why that happens a little bit. Yeah, it, it's 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 interesting because when that when that happened, that wasn't necessarily the the biggest bloom that we had seen in Lake Erie. It just it just happened that it was toxic and it and it floated over the water intake pipe for the for the city. And so, you know, blue. I, I think one of the things that even just talking with with my friends and family that. Uh, their knowledge about this extends about as far as what they have to listen to me talk about at dinner. Um, but, but um, you know, they're, they're extend, they, they're like, well, it was a really big bloom, so it must be really toxic. And so I think that one of the misconceptions in the public is, is that if you have this big bloom, it is going to cause this like toxic water issue. Um for for situations like what we saw in Toledo in 2014, that is driven by a different kind of biochemical process. And so depending on a lot of different factors, and this is still being studied of kind of what takes, what makes a bloom go from kind of a, a normal algal bloom uh, to becoming toxic and producing this toxin that is then harmful to, for for drinking water, for, for exposure, for your pets, if they're like recreating in, in surface water. Um, some of that has to do with, and not to get too into the weeds, but I mean, some of that has to do with, with like how much nitrogen was in the system versus phosphorus. Um, but yeah, so, so toxicity uh, is not always super predictable. Um, and so that is something that that researchers are certainly working on to try and figure out not only what what ultimately drives toxicity, um, but also what like how we can predict this. So the general public wants to know if they can be able to go into the water, if they can go boating, if they can do all these things. So there's there's a, a, a huge body of research going on right now of, of figuring out what that prediction looks like. So, you know, as we talk about harmful algal blooms, um, part of it also we need to, to kind of figure out what, what we classify as harmful because, you know, earlier on in our conversation, right, we talked about you have these algal blooms, as that algae dies, it robs the system of, of oxygen, and then you have fish kills. And so some would classify that as harmful. I think when most people talk about harmful algal blooms, they're thinking about ones that become toxic to mm. humans and pets. And so, so I think there is, you can have a really nasty algal bloom that's really sludgy and looks like green pea soup, 
Um, but it, it might not necessarily be toxic from like a health impact to, to humans and to like dogs and things. Yeah. And we can link on our uh, Lakes Chat webpage. Um, we have some videos uh, from the that I think we took around the fifth anniversary of that Toledo water crisis that get a little bit more into what exactly happened and, and the long term impacts on the, the Toledo community. We can put that on our webpage, which is greatlakes.org slash Lakes Chat. Um, but I want to shift over a little bit to Green Bay, right? Because they have this a significant dead zone problem um, that you talked about. And um, so explain a little bit about the Green Bay context, which is pretty different from Western Lake Erie. Yeah, it's it's um, the Green Bay is interesting because it's it is, I think, in, in many ways similar um but different, certainly from like a management standpoint. So Green Bay is the Green Bay watershed is obviously relatively smaller than the than the Lake Erie watershed. It is heavily concentrated with with livestock operations. There is there's considerably less like row crop production um, compared to places like the Western Basin. Um, you know the 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 soils and kind of the geology are different in Green Bay versus Lake Erie. Um, both of them, both Green Bay and Lake Erie rely heavily on, on artificial drainage. And so, which is a rabbit hole that I, I won't get down uh, in this conversation, but, um, but, but suffice to say that like both kind of the, the situations or the kind of the, the setup in both is somewhat similar um, in terms of like what that means for the end result. Um, I think where they're, where they are considerably different. And I think as, as we think about like our work at, at the Alliance, and as we think about our, our partner organizations in all these states, you know, Green Bay is confined to one state and that is good and bad, depending on again, who you talk to. Um, but like from a management standpoint and from a, you know, getting, uh, legislative and like political buy-in um, as somebody coming from, from Michigan, where a lot of my, the bulk of my work prior to coming to the Alliance is, was based in Michigan. Uh, it's hard to drive uh, people in Michigan to, to get riled up about Western Basin of Lake Erie because it doesn't affect that many residents directly in Michigan. Um, it's easy for legislators to say, that's not our problem. That's an Ohio problem. That's an Ontario problem. Whereas in Green Bay, you know, there there's nowhere to really point to, right? Like it it is Wisconsin, and so so it's it. There are, I think, different opportunities, and the way that we approach policy, the way that we approach like financial um, financial mechanisms to address the problem. Um, I think there are different opportunities in Green Bay compared to to the Western Basin. And that's really helpful to think about sort of the political realities of how, you know, getting all of these different levels of government, um, and particularly in Western Lake Erie, where it's binational, right? You've got Canadian uh, impacts there as well, um, flowing into that really shallow, um, warm part of Western Lake Erie. Is there a difference, you know, you talked about how in Ohio it's it's row crops, you know, corn and soybeans, um, whereas in uh, Wisconsin, you know, good old Wisconsin dairy, lots of uh, cows, um, and then the corn and soybeans to feed the cows. Um, 
would that, what kind of differences as far as like on the ground solutions might have to happen in those different areas? Mm. You know, I think in both, um, there, there's a lot of conversation right now about like re rethinking the water management of those regions. So in both of them, and, and again, won't get into the, the ins and outs of artificial drainage, but in both, like we have heavily engineered the systems to move water off the land as quickly as possible um, when farmers need to be able to, to be able to plant and to be able to manage crops. And so what this has done is it has taken away opportunities for filtration upstream and so through like wetlands and things like that. And so there's a lot of conversation in both about how do we how do we change that hydrology back to something something a little bit more natural? Um, you know, western basin of Lake Erie used to be a swamp um, before before we started farming there. Um, so so there's a lot of conversation with that. Um, you know, in 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 Lake Erie and in in that basin, there's a lot of conversation and push around more diversification of what those row crops are. There's more push around having additional treatment um, on that manure before it's applied to fields. Similar, similarly in Wisconsin, um, looking at how do we treat uh, how do we treat those nutrients? How do we treat that pollution before it ultimately gets into the surface water? Um, you know, I think what what ends up coming out of all of it is going to be really highly dependent on what people feel is politically feasible. Um, so it's political feasibility. There's also an economic feasibility piece of it. Um, certainly Wisconsin has has and continues to face uh, a lot of challenges as it relates to the dairy industry and like profitability there. And so new requirements, new standards um, are going to put us, could put you know, a squeeze on on farmers, or at least it is perceived that way sometimes. And so, so I think that's where it's that's where it's going to be a little bit different. But I think fundamentally, the the challenges that we're facing in Great in Green Bay and the the solutions or the things that we can do to address that pollution, I don't think are are fundamentally different than what we need to be doing in Lake Erie. It it really comes down to scalability and and like being really intentional of like where we target those management practices. Mm -hmm. So we can sit here and chat for hours about all this. Uh, and I think this gives us a lot of fodder for some future conversations, Tom, with you and your team and others. Um, if you out of all of that, right, uh, if you had to pick, you know, maybe two or three top things that need to be happening, maybe from a policy perspective or at the, you know, on the, the, the farmland perspective, two or three things that have to happen to prevent ag pollution, what would they be? Uh, well, in no particular order and understanding that this is a few of many, like you said, uh, increasing diversification is going to be huge. And so that, that not only improves like the water management on fields, but it also lessens the need for chemical inputs. So whether that's fertilizers, but something else we didn't talk about here, I mean, there's there are huge and 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 growing concerns around 
uh, you know, pesticide exposure and loss of biodiversity from an insect standpoint due to pesticide and herbicide use. So, so increasing diversification um, can help address some of those concerns as well. Uh, I think we need to be doing a better job of treating water, treating manure before it gets into surface water. And so there are a lot of practices that can be done in field or like at the edge of a field to, to treat some of that water. Um, more people have been exploring like running manure basically through a wastewater treatment plant, similar to what we do with human waste, um, which, uh, you know, I don't think anybody would be, people would be concerned if we were like discharging the the city of Boston's population without treating it, right? Or mm -hmm. maybe I should have used a more regionally specific city. No, people would be concerned if we were discharging all of Toledo's waste as untreated. Um, mm -hmm. But in a large respect, that's what we do with, with animal waste. <coughs> um, the other, you know, at maybe a bigger scale, there are things we need to look at at a federal level. And so the the farm bill and farm policy in the US is is again set up for set up for this like get bigger get out kind of mentality mm -hmm. um it's also set up with uh you know with crop insurance and with with different incentives within the farm bill it creates these like perverse incentives for farmers to be able to take riskier and riskier decisions from from a environmental standpoint um, but there is a safety net there that that if those things inevitably fail, um, that they'll be in an okay sh spot financially. And so there are things we need to do. There are things we could do within federal policy um, to reduce some of those those risks that that could be like that we basically set up for farmers uh, environmentally. Um, you know, and then overall rethinking just like our food system right and and rethinking how and what we produce in this country um rethinking like consumer expectations around food i mean you know again farmers are one piece in a much bigger system and and so you know as consumers we have come to expect a lot of food uh at a very low cost and to be available mm -hmm in a grocery store, in a fast food store, in a fine dining restaurant, right? Like we've come to build these expectations. And so if as consumers, we have those expectations, um, it it gives more fodder to be able to keep doing production ag the way we have been for the last 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So really what we're talking about is some major fundamental shifts here if we want to be like get serious about protecting our waterways um so certainly lots of opportunity but i know also probably some of our listeners are feeling like oh my gosh where do we even start how can i even help it feels a little insurmountable um we're lucky to have you and your team on the case here at the alliance for the great lakes um but just leaving for our listeners a little bit any suggestions on what our listeners could do you know just as themselves to start helping, you know, things that they can do in their lives or um, to start being a part of a, a positive solution? Yeah, I, um, as somebody with like high levels of existential dread about all of this, <laughs> uh, it, I understand like that we need like actionable things. And there are, uh, there are a lot of things that are 
beyond what the average person can do um, at like this like federal and international level. I think one of the the best things folks can do is get engaged with state level policy decisions. And so there are in Ohio, there is there is a, an ongoing process around developing um, what what people call pollution diet for uh, for Lake Erie. And so there are public comment opportunities. There are public meetings where where folks can voice kind of their concerns. And so one of the things, again, that we're trying to do is is like elevate voices and individuals that haven't necessarily been as involved in those in those discussions previously, you know, in, in Michigan and Wisconsin, I mean, people are impacted by water quality issues. And if they are not in force coming out and, and demanding and asking for changes of, of their, of their elected officials of state agencies, then, then it continues to kind of fly under the radar and it becomes something that like, you know, you and I are talking about and you and I are pushing for in in state houses and state administrations. Um, but there is a huge amount of there are a huge amount of opportunities that at the state level that I think citizens can get engaged with. And, and I think that is, for me, like the first step for a lot of this, because until we have enough people saying, no, like I would like to be able to go to the lake. Like, no, I would like to be able to not cancel my boat tours on Lake Erie mm -hmm. because the algae is so bad or it's toxic. Um, like until we get to that point, um, it's it's easy for the status quo to just kind of keep plodding along as it is. Um, so that that would be the my my biggest plug to average citizens and and certainly. You know, we at the Alliance, as you know, um, update folks uh, regularly on this and, and we'll continue to add, you know, those public comment opportunities, you know, on our website and, and loop more people in. Yeah. That's great, Tom. Um, and, uh, you know, we're excited to have you here at the Alliance and, uh, you know, for our listeners, the Alliance for the Great Lakes, we're building uh, more and more capacity to tackle these policy issues. So uh, stay tuned and, uh, you know, be sure to subscribe to our email list, hint, hint, uh, to get those updates uh, and those action opportunities from uh, Tom and, and his team here at the Alliance. So, you know, thank you so much, Tom. Tom, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm overwhelmed with information. Uh, and uh, for to chat with us today about agriculture, pollution, and harmful algal blooms. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, you'll find links to more information about the topics that we talked about today. And you can also sign up for updates to stay in the know about Great Lakes issues and opportunities to get involved. Special thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode drops. Talk to you next week.